all-new, crisp, cool, refreshing Cano Tambos. A complete affordable library of tambourine loops from 50 to 154 beats per minute. Pop the top and add instant life and dynamics to any mix. Used by the top producers, engineers, and recording artists of today. Simply drag and drop. With multiple bit depths and sample rates to choose from, you'll never have to record another tambourine again. Visit canotambos.com. That's C-A-N-O-T-A-M-B-O-S.com and enter promo code Turned Up. One word, Turned Up, for 20% off. Cano Tambos. And I'll just start this. Are you there? Hey, hey. I'm over here. I'm down here on the blue track. Is a million dollar album going to sound better than a $606.17 album? You can pick those starter kits up at Walmart for like $100. $100. Bucks. You yeah. can have the same kind of guitar that one of these world famous guitarists are playing on stage and all around the world. Broadcasting from Nashville, Tennessee, offering a glimpse inside the music industry, shedding light on things they don't want you to know, and exposing some of the industry's biggest secrets. You're listening to the Turned Up Podcast, presented by Real Sound Productions. Here are your hosts, Jake Jones, oregano, paprika, garlic, onion, salt, and Robert Venable. Metallica. Metallica. Let me just close Pinterest real quick, and then we can start the podcast. Oh, Pinterest, yeah? Yeah. yeah. If uh, I had a nickel for every time you it, have had to close a Pinterest tab to start this podcast. Technically, it's Mantrist. It's, it's Pinterest for men. It's called oh. Mantrist. Oh. Yeah. I guess I should have said Mantrist. That would have been better, I guess. Mantrist. That would have been a better like pun. Yeah. I didn't come up with it fast enough. I like it. Slow on the draw today. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> How you doing, Jake? Man, I'm doing really well. Good. Me too. I'm excited about this podcast. I, I So we... Before we ever even started the first episode of Turned Up, uh, we had this list that still exists. Yep, we have it. And at the top of the list for me was this episode. And we have waited until now to put it out because... How did we wait so long? I don't think we intended to wait this long. I think it was we didn't want to put it out in the very beginning. Show all our <laughs> show all our cards. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and then it was like, wait a minute, we have this episode. We never did it. We needed to do this one. Uh, I'm excited. It's because it's something that I um, that I kind of l- run my business by, uh, mostly just because I'm broke. But you didn't hear that um, or nothing. Because <laughs> it's, it's because I work in the music industry. It's because I had my headphones off. <laughs> oh no, I'm. <laughs> That's why I heard nothing. No, um, and I'm really excited. So, uh, so the truth is, and tell me I'm wrong, Robert. You are wrong, Robert. Oh, no, that's that's. Not what you wanted me to do, was it at all? No. I see where you're going with this. You get what you pay for. Uh, sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. Um, my mom always used to say that something is only worth what someone will pay for it, which I think holds water. I think that that's true to some extent. Um, when We should just stop skating around this. This episode's going to be about uh, instruments and studios and producers and albums. And does it take a lot of money to have a nice one of those? Uh, if you pay a lot of money for a good producer, are you going to get the same product as paying for a cheap producer off Craigslist? Um, yes or no? Right. Mm-hmm. Is a million dollar album going to sound better than a $606.17 album? Well, we have some interesting stories about records recorded in people's uh, parents' basements, in accounting offices, um, in houses by the beach, things that they've you know paid for the rental of and then just did it themselves as well as uh, instruments that are not very expensive, played by huge names in the industry. Like some of your favorite musicians might be playing the cheapest instruments out there. Um, And you might be surprised. Even one of them, um, I have a fact about 
the name that you might see on a particular brand, uh, that the, the guy's last name is the name you see on that brand, and he plays one of the cheapest versions of that instrument. Wow. Well, so, okay, first thing that comes to mind when I think of uh, someone who has recorded or produced other people's records in crazy, cheap, unexpected places is Robert Venable. We will talk about some stories. I've got some stories about that. I'm excited. In fact, you have a gold record for an artist whose drums you did. Uh, in a room smaller than a bedroom. We'll, we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll get to that later. We'll get there. Um, but it's Robert Venable who does have gold records, Grammy nominations, Dove Awards, uh, Best Album of the Year, Best New Artist of the Year, uh, number one hits on Billboard that he has written, produced, uh, he's done everything. Uh, he's a multi-instrumentalist, drummer for the band. As we ascend, uh, one of my favorite bands by far, for real. Great band. I, I know Love why. That band. Oh, that's weird that's, that you sing and play guitar for the same even, band. Mm, we'll talk about that in a minute. Anyway. Um, <laughs> he's truly amazing, so creative. I draw so much inspiration from the work that he does, but don't tell him because I don't want him to get a big head. I won't. Above all else, he's my best friend in the entire world. And something I just learned about you, Robert, with all the, the Easter candy coming out as we approach uh, the Easter holiday, uh, is that you eat only the peanut butter out of the center of the little Reese's mini cups and you leave the chocolate perfectly intact. But your method for doing that is what really blows my mind. Right. And I wish I knew exactly how I do that. Um, since I'm just finding about, out about this, like right now, I have to come up with it on the fly. What I do... <laughs> You're violating the rules of improv. <laughs> I sure am disclosing all my secrets of not knowing what I'm about to say. Um, it's true. And this, it goes back to when I was a little kid and I didn't know that the chocolate wasn't part of the wrapper. I always thought, oh, okay, you take off the, the plastic piece, then you take off the other little paper wrapper that's accordion shaped at the bottom. And then you have to somehow peel off all the chocolate. Well, I got sick of that and devised a method uh, using a uh, fishbowl filter. That uh, like the motor from one of those automatic filters for yeah, a fishbowl. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I can't give away all my secrets, mostly because I don't know them all. And it has something to do with sticking <laughs> it in the chocolate, letting it run for about 10 to 15 seconds, and then shutting it off before it clogs and you get in big trouble. You take the little fan out and yeah, you gotta clean get that the off. Butter just out lick of it. It's a little watery. <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> then you put it back in the fish tank. And then no one knows the difference. <laughs> the fish swims really fast for a good 20 minutes after that. <laughs> Little remnants of chocolate and peanut butter on the thing. The unfortunate thing is, is you were in your mid nineties before you even realized that uh, that's not where peanut butter comes from. It's not harvested from the center of Reese's cups. Right. It's actually its own thing and Mm. gets put into the chalk, and that's what makes Reese's cups special. Yeah, my mid two hundred nineties. That was a good section of life there for a while. Um, Yeah, that was that's true. (laughs) Jake Jones, uh, man, it's it's tough being able to describe. Like, like what we do and our acc- accolades and our accomplishments because you and I hang out a lot. We're best friends. We, we do everything together. We've, we've had a lot of life experiences. We've traveled all over the world, literally, together with our spouses and each other in our band. Um, but the band, by the way, as we ascend, this is why you were, I don't know, being all weird about being your favorite <laughs> band because you're the freaking, <laughs> one of the two freaking singers and uh, guitarist for the band. A shout out to Justin Forshaws being the other half of the frontmen of our band, which is weird. We have three people and two of them are frontmen. Three of them are frontmen now, now that you're going to be taking lead vocals on I have to sit, one of our new songs. I have to sit back by the drums. Yeah, well, that's fine. We can give you a microphone. We don't need that. But we'll give you like a like a Backstreet Boys mic, like a head mic. <laughs> like a Phil Collins mic? Like, like, yeah, like a headset? Birth. Yeah. That'd be great. Can I have a little fuzzball at the end of it? A big one. A big one for a wind filter? Yeah, absolutely. 
I don't like, want to get those plosives. It's going to look like a bunny tail in front of my face. Absolutely. This is going to be great. When I start sweating and just turn soggy and it's dripping wet, like an old washcloth. <laughs> <Gross>. spitting up. <laughs> just sneezing while I'm playing drums. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever sneezed while playing drums. That's interesting. We're not talking about me. We're talking about you. So have you ever sneezed while singing? Like no, while playing guitar? Like but you, I, I burp. Like while you're singing? Yeah. I haven't even noticed that. Oh, well, I'm, I mean, I try not to, and I, or I try to cover it up or... <laughs> You, you guys a, sing. Some, <laughs> just for real, sometimes you hit a note and it's like, oh crap. Uh, before you were the singer for As We Ascend, you are, were a uh, freaking ridiculous guitar player sharing the stage with all these huge bands. I'm um, in the band, uh, We As Human, almost, well, 40 and Slip. Uh, we As Human, uh, touring all over the world, all the coolest venues. Red Rocks is probably my favorite venue in the whole world. And you got to play it twice? Twice, yeah. That's so ridiculous. And I've heard all your stories about being on the road and everything. Um, Red Rocks is one of the most awkward venues to play. Why? Because you're so down, you're so far down, and oh, the yeah. seating is just stone. I mean, it's I mean, it's seats, cool. but it's it's the side of a mountain. So yeah, you're looking upward. up at you know the further back you look, the further up you're. But the front row is still higher than head level. Eye level. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> that is weird. But it's a cool venue to see. Like that's a very cool setting to be to see any of your favorite bands or oh, any absolutely. band in general. And to be the band playing that stage is a huge honor, and you've done it twice. Absolutely. Jeez, man. And then, uh, so you also are a songwriter with Trollsville Music. Shout out to Chad Green. Um, you are an award-winning, top-of-the-charts, Billboard number one songwriter, producer, mixer, musician, um, also Rock Band of the Year, Best New Artist, um, all, all the things. Oh, runner-up for iHeart Podcast Music of the Year. Music Podcast? iHeart Radio Podcast Music Podcast of the Year. Woo. Runner up. That's a whole sentence just for an accolade. Turned up, man. We we <laughs> did it. That's a that's a big accomplishment. But you and I, we we made something. Um, and you've got this ridiculous recording studio, uh, Incendium Sound, that we're sitting in right now in Tennessee, just south of Nashville. Uh, country music, music city. But you don't really no. do much country. We write a little bit of country. Yeah, we wrote a smash country hit this this week. We did. Uh, shout out to Luke from Canada, Luke Nielsen. Hey, Luke. From Canada, I'm just going to call him that the whole time, though. Um, but something that that we haven't talked about on the show, and I've I've been reluctant to say anything about because I didn't want the word to get out that you actually knew this information, that you were privy to such uh, classified info. Jake is one of only three people to know the three. the secret recipe, all eleven secret herbs and spices to KFC's ingredients um, to their spicy. Uh, their chicken, their grilled, their, what, not even grilled chicken, their fried chicken, fried chicken, chicken yep. original recipe. fried chicken, all 11 herbs and spices. Go mm-hmm. ahead and name five of them. Oregano. Interesting. Paprika. Saw that coming. Uh, garlic. Okay. Onion. Ooh, what a twist there at the end. Salt. Oh. Five. That is five. And you're going to leave the other six up to our imagination, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead and name them. <laughs> His eyes just like, oh, I don't even know if I know Pepper, 11 herbs and spices. <laughs> rosemary. <laughs> Smarties. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm done. Reese's peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I wonder. So when, uh, when I was little, my grandma gave me a book that uh, I think it was called like What in the World or something like that which had all sorts of like world records and cool did you know facts and stuff about everything in the world because the internet wasn't a thing yet really. And it was a book, like I guess an inch and a half thick 
but like a full 12 inches by 10 inches, like a huge book, not like a little pocket size book. And so many just like world records and like, look at this lady with like a 13 inch long neck and look at this guy with fingernails that touched his toes. And, uh, but the part that intrigued me was one of the people who had the original recipe to like Coca-Cola or Pepsi or something like that, which was highly guarded. His last name was Venable. I'm like, <gasps> wait a minute. I am heir to the throne to have the recipe <laughs> to this soft drink. And I was always like, I used to tell people in school. It was recipe. Oh, I don't know. I didn't say what it was. Well, but you should know now. I haven't received that information yet. You've been around for hundreds of years. I think they mailed it to me in the future and I haven't received it yet. Fair I don't enough. know how they know where I'm going to be. Did you ever do any of those like mail yourself things? Like there used to be websites that like send yourself an email in 10 years. What would you want to tell yourself? And you could like type it in and then in 10 years it would email you at that address. I never got any of them. I don't know where they all are, but I did them. Uh, well, okay. So the church that I went to when I first moved here um, does a lot of that kind of stuff. And it's like a time capsule. Like years later. But not. You get that. I just last year got a, a card I had written to myself. For real? Uh, yeah. Like, from, a, like, like a physical one. 2011. Yep. A tangible card you wrote yourself. Mm-hmm. How did it get to you? They mailed it to me. Like you've lived in the same address for however many years? No, but um, either it was forwarded or they found it or... Interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I still I still talk to some of those people. I don't, you know, I know they have my address. to me a birthday card. Oh, they, year, so. they keep you updated in the system. I guess, yeah. I guess you don't church jump as much as I do. <laughs> <laughs> it is the second church. <laughs> or it was the first, first of two churches that I've been to since moving here. Uh, we've been to... We've been the same one for the last 10 years, but we church shopped for a good six months before that. And we're church shopping again now. Just church shopping. What an interesting expression. It is. But I mean, you have to find the right one. Do you shop organic, non-GMO? Do you oh, try no, to I'm 100% just deep fried. Wreck my life. Yes, please. I want you to tear it up. Get in there to the bone. All the preservatives. If it tastes good, it is good. Yeah, make it, <laughs> wreck me with it. <laughs> you know what? If it sounds good, it is good. That's that's a, a mantra that I live by. That's a mantra I've lived by since 2003. And I think that's going to stick true to what we're talking about today. Because some things cost a lot of money and some things don't. But if it sounds good at the end of the day, does it really matter? Not one stinking bit. You know, uh, a question I'm asked a lot as a producer is... Uh, I guess it's a statement. And they're more concerned like, hey, I've only got this $200 guitar. Is that going to be okay? Or should we borrow one of yours? Or should I rent one? I'm like, it doesn't matter. What's it sound like? And like, I don't know, a guitar. I'm like, well, does it stay in tune? Because even the most expensive guitars I've ever recorded, I tell them to tune after every single take. Um, is it intonated properly? Do you know how to play it? Do you know what you're playing through? If you can make it sound good at your house, let, bring it on. Let's go. Let's Let's see what we can do with it. Um, if you're happy with it, let's do it. If you're not happy with it, we'll work our way around it. But it doesn't mean that your $200 guitar, your like 50 buck first act guitar that you can get at Target, um, it doesn't mean that it's not going to sound good. And I can tell you stories about that in just a minute. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. And, uh, you know, and again, you know, I'll have some stories as well about just using cheap, you know, I cheap has certain connotations. So I should say inexpensive yeah, that's a good way. gear on stage in the studio. Um, and, and it, it's, I don't know, it just blows my mind kind of thinking back, um, the more research, not only just for this podcast, but just the more research into our field that I've done, you kind of learn that as a new piece of technology comes around, it's first 
rejected, then it's embraced, then it's rejected again. And with that rejection comes, oh, it's, it's no good. It, it pushes the price of it down. So it becomes less expensive. Right. And you realize, oh, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, this was the greatest thing that ever existed. Right. Um, I think solid state amplifiers uh, for rock and roll um, are a fantastic example of that. Uh, solid state meaning not using tubes, vacuum tubes. It's straight up just going through, it's electricity going through wires rather than hitting those tubes and quote unquote warming up the sound or, yeah. or amplifying it through, through, I guess it'd be, there's a whole science behind it. But yeah, no tubes involved. Let's right. just say that. So when, when, <laughs> when the non-tube amps came around, it was just the coolest thing because tube amps are expensive. They're bulky. Their parts are, are expensive. They're, they have to be, uh, the tubes have to be replaced like right. a light bulb. I mean, they yeah. kind of look like little light bulbs. Um, and over time they go out, they go bad. Uh, they're sensitive to heat and cold and moisture and, and other electricity being nearby. Everything. Yeah. Um, they're just a pain to upkeep. And, uh, and whereas solid state amplifiers, you can, I mean, <laughs> my very first amplifier is still in my basement right now and still works. It's a, uh, and I've never done anything other than plug it in and use it. I don't have to replace anything on it. Nothing's going right. bad. Um, so there are definitely advantages, but you ask, uh, you know, the average muso, someone in the music industry or, or big, you know, hardcore fan of gear or whatever. And they're just going to tell you solid state amplifiers are a joke that they're terrible and that they sound bad because yeah, that's that, what everybody else says. But that wasn't always the case. Uh, for a while there, everybody loved the solid state technology. And that was on a lot of the hugest records we've listened to. And like the big rock records, I keep slamming my hand in this microphone stand. So if you hear big <laughs> booms, that's, that's, that's me. Um, but it, it, that was a sound that people craved and a sound that people wanted to get. And I actually have a story uh, of someone bringing in a solid state, a small little combo. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, before we go there, okay. I just want to, I, I want to go over that. So I was having fun while I was sitting on the toilet doing my research because that's where I that's, brain, that's where I brain the best. We have side by side. My stalls. office is great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, pass our, our papers under the door. Um, <laughs> just kidding. There's no door. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so something I, I kind of stumbled across, there's lots of these lists that you can find, um, but they're, they're full of really great information. Some, so some of this I kind of knew uh, and some of this I didn't realize, but um, it, it, it doesn't necessarily cost a lot to make a good record. And there are some examples throughout history that prove this. And so I've only got a, a couple here, a few. Yeah, um, so let's go back to 1988. That is okay. the year Jake Jones was born. That, I, that was not the year that Robert Venable was born. This band that I don't even know if it had a name yet, um, had uh, their singer had written a bunch of songs, 12 to be exact. And he went into this little studio. It's a little triangle shaped studio. I can't remember the name of it. I can't either. And um, they, they had a house producer there who charged them $150 and they set up, they, I think they could only do, um, oh gosh, they only had, six hours, I think that they could spare because they had a show that night <laughs> and they recorded 11 and a half demos. It was $30 for a reel of tape and cause they, you know, they were trying to tape and they ran out of that first reel midway through that last, that 12th song and couldn't, they didn't have 30 more dollars to spend on another reel. So that engineer took those demos and sent them off to this brand new company that was, they were, they were a record label, but they hadn't quite gotten up and started yet. That label was called Sub Pop and they were in Seattle. 
and uh, and they really liked uh, they really liked these demos, and so uh, they got back to the band. The band had given themselves a name by then. That name is Nirvana, and their singer, who is Kurt Cobain, was was Kurt Cobain. Well, the singer of Nirvana will always be Kurt Cobain. I guess you're right. Um, went in and they tracked their first record. Uh, the album is called Bleach, uh, and that was in 1988. Uh, and they paid a total of $606.17. Um, fun fact, the uh, I don't remember who he was to them, but a friend of theirs actually paid the $600 to record that record. And so he is credited on the album as being the guitarist, even though he didn't play guitar huh. uh, on the record. They just wanted to give him some credit for having paid for it all. Um, Interesting. But yeah, they uh, they loaded in their cheap amps and their cheap guitars and their cheap basses and their cheap drums. And uh, uh, the the producer reflecting back on those sessions just said how blown away he was because it didn't matter that their stuff was cheap. It didn't matter that they recorded everything so quickly that it only cost them $600 to do the album. They had practiced so hard and Kurt was so serious about what they were doing uh, that when they got in, they nailed the parts, they played them all at the same time so they could get in there, get it done and get out. Right. And it took them no time to make it. And uh, the album sold 30,000 copies on its own and then has since gone back. Uh, and, you know, after the oh, album, yeah. Nevermind came out their big one um, and gone multi-platinum. Oh, for sure. Um, but Yeah. I love that story. So fun fact about Nirvana, you're talking about their band name. They're actually known um, before Nirvana. Their first band name was Skid Row, Fecal Matter, Fecal Matter and Ted, Ed, Fred. Um, that was their first uh, few band names. And oh, then, I was about to say, was that all one name? No, no, no. <laughs> Skid Row, interesting, right? Um, but then they went to uh, Nirvana and then they had a lawsuit against them by a Brit band, the same name, what? that started in 1965, two years before Kurt Cobain was even born. Oh, wow. Um, and then they eventually reached a settlement in court and the British Nirvana, you know, seized on the opportunity though, releasing a tongue in cheek psychedelic cover of Nirvana's hit come as you are, <laughs> which is kind of funny. <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, that was a little, a little fun fact for you on the, the band name Nirvana before oh, they wow. came around. But you were talking about Nirvana and it reminded me of Beck. Um, and I kind of lumped them together because a lot of my friends who listened to a lot of Nirvana were also Beck heads and listened to a lot of the stuff like their album Odele. It, was, it wasn't until last year that I realized their big hit, Loser, uh, which came out in 94. I'm a loser, baby. That the first lines of that chorus are Spanish for I'm a loser. Is it I'm a loser, baby? Soy, which is I am. Un, which is a. What, I don't, what does it like say there? saying? Pedador or something? Yeah. I, I always just kind of gloss over that one. All our Spanish-speaking um, listeners need to correct baby. us because we are horrible so researchers. Don't you hate me or kill me? Kill me. Yeah, um, that's horrible. Yeah, I didn't know that that was... He was just singing Spanish. I'm a loser. I'm a loser, and then he sings it in English. Uh, yeah, so 1996, the Odelay record um, that they did. Trying to follow up that big hit so he wasn't a one-hit wonder. Yeah, ridiculously cheap recording equipment. Um, the stuff that you could pick up anywhere i don't know probably not the stuff you have to order online these days and find on ebay that's all vintage and tubey and all the things that everybody wants all the, the buzzwords warm analog <sighs> gear well and this was 96 so uh computer recording was still pretty new it was still around yeah i was doing things but he point. was he was working uh with a pair of producers and they went by was it the dust brothers yeah yep the dust brothers yeah 
who he was, I know he was really excited to work with those guys for that record. Uh, and they were known for, you know, ripping off samples from other albums and laws were really kind of clamping down around that time. Just some fun facts to interject. Yeah, they did a lot of uh, Beastie Boys stuff and also um, Mbop for Hanson. Shut up. They're songwriters. They did a lot of stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, uh, they were working with the band and uh, they were using Pro Tools, which is what I use. You use Cubase, um, which is a different uh, DAW or digital audio workstation, the, the software that we use to record the stuff. We don't go to tape anymore. Um, some people do. We don't. Uh, we go to ones and zeros on a hard drive. Mm. Anyway, I go there via Pro Tools, same way the Dust Brothers did and Beck on this record. And uh, the the version of Pro Tools they were using in the computer hardware they had to run the software on at the time was so freaking slow. And, and I can relate to this sometimes, just being a, a man of um, impatience. <laughs> <laughs> I have ideas and I want to get them out and sometimes I have to wait on the computer. Um, while they're waiting for things to render and things to load and and plugins to do their thing and whatever they they were waiting on, it, they you know, they're so slow. They were writing new parts and already had ideas and were finding samples and listening to other music um, on vinyl and cassettes and trying to find samples they're going to rip and stuff like that because they had all the time in the world while they're waiting <laughs> on the Pro Tools little spinning wheel of death to go gonna get there gonna get there. Well, and something that the Dust Brothers were known for uh, was their vast record collection. Uh, which they would use, of course, to to rip a lot of those samples off. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I <laughs> took us a long. I was like, let's listen to an entire record. Oh yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff on this record. We could we can use that for if you were gonna another song. Render anything done saving yet? Pro Tools. Yeah, you hit save or you hit render or balance to disc. It just took forever. And so I remember even when I was getting started on Pro Tools, ninety uh, nine, I think it was the first time. Um, you hit save or render. And you can go make yourself a sandwich, <laughs> drive around the block, come back and see if it's about halfway done yet. Um, it, it took time. And these days we're doing offline bouncing, which means it's not in real time. It doesn't mean, four, it means a four minute song is not going to take four minutes to bounce. It's going to take, or render, I guess, for people who don't do music. Um, it take, you can do it in like 20 seconds, yeah, which is great. It takes all those tracks and smushes them into that final audio file that you're going to hear on iTunes right. music because we don't use Spotify anymore. Oh, yeah. Death to Spotify. Um, put, put me down on the, on the con section of that, not pro. So let's fast forward to another massively successful album. Uh, or actually, I think it might have been an EP. Um, uh, yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember either. I remember when that first song hit the charts, though. Uh, it debuted at like number 59 or something like that on the top 100. Uh, but it hit it hit the Billboard Top 100 really quickly, though. It became one of the biggest songs of that entire year, 2009. Anybody want to guess what it is? All right, you right there, sitting in your car. What song is it? Louder, please. Yeah, we can't hear you. N- yeah, eh, whatever. Just, just yell it. Uh, yell at the car next to you. <laughs> just yell, Fireflies! Is that what it's called? Well, that was, that was the name of the song, yeah. yeah. Uh, by Owl City, the album was uh, Of June, is what it was called. That's right, I forgot. So... This entire album was recorded in his parents' basement and then uploaded to MySpace. That that was the thing to do at the time. Which is where it was discovered. Adam Young was the guy, the, the man behind the name Owl City, uh, uh, living in Minnesota, yeah, in his parents' basement. And he was working for Coca-Cola in the warehouse, moving boxes on and off trucks and from one section of the warehouse to the other. And he was like, man, I'm making music through yeah. this. And just like that, one of the hottest songs of the, of the entire year. Um, 
and didn't have to didn't have to save up for a thousand years to buy that really nice expensive microphone or that really awesome console or save up a second mortgage worth of uh, savings to go to a named producer, a famed named producer somewhere in the world and travel expenses and a hotel and studio rental and then editing and mixing and mastering. Um, He recorded that stuff himself down in the lower basement of his parents' house in Minnesota. So there's basements and then there's garages, right? Huge difference. The term garage (laughs) band uh, has been around forever and there's video games named after it. There's recording software named after it. Right. Um, When you think of garage bands, you think of what? Uh, I think of like just getting started. Let's get the guys together. We're going to be just, you know, kind of hit around on things, out of tune guitars, loud um, for like 45 minutes on a Thursday afternoon. In a garage. In a garage. Really sweaty, really loud and No echoey. shirts allowed because it's too hot. Maybe like a can of beer over there on the amp or something. I don't know. Like I, I, I just picture like something from the 70s. Um, you know, actually the, uh, the, <laughs> the um, I have pictures from when I was probably three or four years old. And uh, the, um, I, I, they're, my stepdad and his brother and their friend uh, out in the garage, big PV stack speakers, my picture drums without resonant heads on them. And, <laughs> and, uh, I think it's like an acoustic electric plugged into an amplifier. Uh, yep. No shirts, no shirts allowed. Like the big wall of amp and, um, the beginning of back to the future. Yes. Marty goes over and plugs it into this huge wall of speakers and, but like I tried playing drums once in a garage. And, and then he writes a song that he teaches to Chuck Berry. That's right. Changed the course of history. Oh. <laughs> Man, I can't play. Yeah, I never did the garage band thing. I played in a ska band once. We tried practicing in the garage. It was just so loud. I did the garage band thing. Um, well, let's talk about one of the most famous garage bands that there ever was and ever will be. Okay. The Foo Fighters. Not Carly Rae Jepsen. Oh. Yeah, Again yeah. with the Carly Rae Jepsen. She never tweeted me. Oh my gosh. I'm going to try. I'm going to tweet her right now while we're, while you talk about this next section, go ahead. Right, well, talk talk about it. the Foo Fighters and I'm going to tweet Carly Rae Jepsen. Foo Fighters, 2011, Dave Grohl wanted to take it back to their roots. Uh, you know, I think garage banding especially was huge in the nineties because we didn't really have the ability uh, or the, just the equipment wasn't readily available to be a quiet practice band. Um, you know, you, you just bands had real drums, period, the end. That's what you did. And you had to bang them loud. So to hear over it, you had to sing into a PA system with guitars turned all the way up. Um, and you definitely weren't going to be a rock band with a little combo amp. You had to have the separate head with the big, massive cabinet and all. Anyway, hmm. um, so in 2011, uh, the Foo Fighters recorded Wasting Light. The entire album was recorded in Dave's garage, right? Okay. Now that doesn't come as the biggest surprise in the entire world. Foo Fighters are kind of known for the, you know, throwing up the big F you to everybody and saying, we're going to do things our own way, um, which is as rock and roll as it gets. But what I find really fascinating is uh, let's think about all of the amazing things that the Foo Fighters have done over the years. Dave Grohl being the former drummer for Nirvana, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, and lead singer and founding member of the Foo Fighters. Right. Um, 
But what surprises me about this record that was recorded in Dave's garage is that it was their first number one Billboard album. That's interesting. Yeah. First album to go number one. Done in the garage. And have you, have you ever seen his documentary, Dave Grohl's, um, called Sound City, where he talks all about like the analog recording gear, all the things we were just talking about a second ago, the expensive gear. He, he had it all um, eventually, but that's yeah. interesting that he... He hit number one first. If I recall, he even wound up with the the console out of Sound City, right? He did, yeah. Is that him? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He he took that home. Bought it. Probably in his garage. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny that you talk about studio, uh, like recordings done in garages, because a lot of times now studios are in garages, at least in Nashville. Like that's a thing. 500 recording studios um, in a little suburb of Nashville called Berry Hill. And they're all in little houses. Yep. Um, and there might be five or six really big, nice studios that you see like in the movies and TV show like Nashville. Um, but that's not where the majority of these records you're hearing are coming from. And it's that's a little fun fact. Yeah. It's so true. Now let's talk for a second about the instruments that are on these recordings or are on stage in front of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Well, if we're seeing musicians on stage in front of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, they are probably playing instruments worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars because they can afford it. And obviously, uh, more money on an instrument means better sound, right? Because uh, these people are probably playing $10,000 guitars because they sound better. I mean, I could do that too, but why are we doing this? Oh, I get it. You're laughing. Uh, it's true, and uh, but not, you know. Um, more expensive instruments does not necessarily mean that they sound better. And often cases, I've noticed in personal experience, they don't. Yeah, I was just having this discussion actually with my next door neighbor. Interesting. Uh, so they're wanting to, uh, they're wanting to buy their son an acoustic guitar, and they're looking all around, and not, you know, they want to get him something good, but. N- if he decides he's not interested anymore, they don't want to spend a fortune on it. Um, and they're concerned about getting him something too cheap because it might not be good. And with acoustic guitars in particular, man, I have played, uh, I have played $20,000 acoustics that sounded like uh, sh- strings wound over a garbage can. Those are my favorite acoustics. No, those, no, so you're saying those they, are they sound great, they, huh? No, they're terrible. Oh, yeah, I'm new. Though. You're totally missing the point. Hey, sorry, go ahead. Uh, but there are, there have been cheap ones that that you and I have both owned before, or currently, or currently, that um, should just be called garbage. Maybe in some cases that sound ridiculously amazing. Yeah, like ridiculously amazing. And and it it differs. You can't just go buy the same quote unquote garbage guitar and hope it sounds the same because it won't. Every guitar made is different because of the age of the wood, how it's put together, maybe the way it's seated or glued, um, the humidity, the, the conditions it's been kept in, the kind of strings on it. Quality of the wood. And anything it has to do with the way it sounds. And, and one thing that people look for is where it's made. And I don't know the validity, and maybe you can help me out with this, of like there, there are guitars, for instance, we're on that example, made in America, made in Mexico, made in Japan. Um, and some people are like, oh, I was going to pay you that for that, but it's made in Mexico instead of made in America. I'm like, well, I can't personally, as a producer, hear a big difference between those two. Oh, right. Uh, do you? You're a guitarist. 
Uh, not usually. Um, yeah. I mean, it all depends on on what type of guitar, what what sound you're looking for. Um, I mean, right there on my wall is a Fender Stratocaster made in Mexico. Right. Um, but I swapped the pickups out in it uh, for uh, for a very specific type of Stevie Ray Vaughan blues pickups. I think those happen to be made in America, but that's not what I was looking for. I just, I knew that I wanted that sound. Um, but I know that that guitar plays amazing. I know that it's on all kinds of records. Um, I know that you're, you're not going to hear, well, you're going to hear a difference between that guitar and another one just like it that has nothing to do with where it was made uh, or the quality of the wood. Uh, it's going to come down to every instrument sounds just a little different. That's true. Um, because of lots of factors. Um, but, you know, with electric guitar, I think the pickups have more to do with the difference in sound. Uh, whereas I have a, you know, an Epiphone, uh, uh, Les Paul, which was made, I believe, in Japan. Now, are Epiphones the lower end? I, I, I don't know, entry level, not even entry level, but like the lower priced version of the, or is that a style? Like it, the Les Paul. It's price. So Epiphone was its own company that was eventually purchased by Gibson. Okay. Yeah. And so then, uh, what Gibson, there are, I believe there are still some Epiphones that you can buy that they make that are just an Epiphone. Uh, but for the most part, the Epiphone is the less expensive version of something Gibson. Okay. Uh, you can buy a, like, know. like the Fender Squire, like the Squire is the cheaper version of the Stratocaster or whatever. That's a great example. And okay. different companies, uh, their, you know, air quotes, cheaper or less expensive versions um, may be better or or worse than other companies' less expensive versions. Okay, gotcha. So the Epiphone might not be exactly equal to a Squire, like as far Correct. as the, the ratio of price difference or whatever. Right. Of quality. Okay, cool. Okay, I'm with you. Uh, so I know on Craigslist, a quick search... For like a Stratocaster, Fender Stratocaster. If you look for a Squire, uh, you can find um, find them for like a hundred bucks, um, and then you can find like a made in Mexico Stratocaster for like four hundred bucks, but a made in America Stratocaster for like a thousand dollars. I was gonna say fourteen hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah, sixteen hundred dollars is one here. Just scrolling through, um, all based off of where they're made. So I personally do not hear a difference. A big difference. I mean, again, like you said, there's going to be little subtle differences from even the same thing from one to the other, just based off of the wood and the conditions. But uh, the Made in Mexico, Made in America one, I don't hear a big difference. Not a thousand dollar difference. Right. And and there's going to be little differences as far as, oh, well, on the American version, we used metal for this thing instead of plastic. Sure. Okay. Or yeah. little things like that. So Real bone or ivory instead of plastic inlays or whatever. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of that I'm sure is just marketing branding. They want to make sure that, uh, that you can immediately identify an American version versus a Mexican version. Gotcha. Um, for, if we're talking about Stratocaster, um, you know, I can looking at my Les Paul, my Epiphone, unless you look at the headstock. So the, the part at the, the very end, are. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it has the, the, basically the corners cut off. Uh, and that's the difference between an Epiphone uh, and a Gibson. Never noticed that. And uh, and then it also says Epiphone on it, and not yeah. Gibson. But you can wipe that off. Every everything else <laughs> looks exactly the same. Um, and it's heavy, like a like a normal Gibson. Uh, it's got that great sustain. The build is the same. The pickups 
not quite as good. Um, but, but you can change can be, those out. Yeah, those can be changed. Okay. And they're fairly inexpensive to do. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of times t- when you tour, uh, your guitars get beat up really bad and they're going to, uh, they're going to get dents and scratches. And, um, ultimately, you know, if you have a five, $10,000, uh, guitar, you're going to, uh, you know, that's going to lose a lot of value very quickly from just touring. So sometimes you use a cheaper guitar or a cheaper, you know, less expensive instrument on tour. So that way that makes sense. It gets beat up or dropped or whatever, you know, or smashed on the last song of a show or smashed at the last song of a show. Conveniently right after. Yeah. yeah, Conveniently right after the guitar tech brings you a new guitar right before the last song. That's slightly different than the other guitars you played the whole show. Yeah. And then you just smash it. That's weird. Are are you going? Cause I have a story about this. Um, I don't have a story. I've seen it done lots of times where I can tell like, oh, they just gave him a smash guitar. I can tell they just switched out the $2,000 guitar that he had an endorsement deal with for like the little Squire. Yeah. And they just brought out that's slightly out of tune the whole song. Uh, right. He's about to smash that guitar. I, I, I've pointed that out to people I've been at concerts. I guarantee you he's about to smash that guitar. I, I, want, I don't want to spoil anything, but yeah, our one of our first big tours uh, with We As Human that we ever did, one of the bands we were on tour with, uh, it cost them $99 through their artist discount <laughs> to purchase a guitar. So they bought one for every show. And yep, last song, brought it out. Uh, it stayed in tune for about three seconds. Uh, the rest of the song sounded like garbage. I, in fact, I don't even think he really tried to play it that much. Um, and the end of the song, smashed it to bits and pieces on the stage and threw the parts out to the yeah. That Man, that's like a lawsuit waiting to happen. <laughs> Throwing shards of right. <laughs> wood and metal and plastic out into a crowd. Maybe handed them off. I don't know. Uh, real quick before we move on, uh, let's just touch on knockoffs because I see online these days, uh, internet buying and purchasing things, shopping for, uh, you know, you want that look, you want it to look good on Instagram. Um, you don't really care what it sounds like. What about these knockoffs? Like on um, AliExpress, uh, which is a website you can buy things directly from China. They make, uh, if you search cleverly enough, <laughs> You can find knockoffs of these um, these Gibson Les Pauls and these Fender Stratocasters and these gold tops and whatever they may be. If you just kind of search for words that are similar to those and find them for like 150 bucks shipped rather than you know 1500 2000 bucks. Well, and China doesn't adhere to the same copyright trademark laws uh, as the rest of the world, right? Uh, which is why in China, you know, street vendors will have DVDs of movies that. Are just now coming out to theaters. And you can get Gucci, on, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and like Louis Vuitton purses and bags that are like, lots yeah, of this is eighty bucks. Yeah, I was gonna say lots of really funny, uh, just just the butt of a lot of funny jokes, right? Because they always have some sort of bizarre, <laughs> slight misspelling. Misspelling of the name. is right. <laughs> um, you know, I actually bought a Gibson Les Paul knockoff that I, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was buying. It was eBay. And, uh, there was one for $600 Gibson, Les Paul, beautiful curly maple top, uh, with this cool dragon inlay on the fretboard, Ooh. uh, looked amazing. Now it, today I would look at that and know immediately it was a knockoff just because I know that Gibson doesn't, nor have they ever made a guitar like that ever. <laughs> um, but at the time I was a teenager and thought, this is awesome. Uh, bought it, got it. And you could tell it was cheap. And some of the things that do separate less expensive from more expensive instruments are the way they're built, not, not necessarily where, um, but you know, the frets, if you're trying to play something and the, the frets are stabbing you in the hand, 
that's a problem. But if it's supposed to be a Gibson and that's happening, well, that's an even bigger problem. And then if you plug it in, it sounds like garbage. <laughs> that's the biggest problem. Um, right. And But the thing is, there are musicians, very famous musicians that have been known to play knockoffs or played a knockoff for a long time and didn't realize it until eventually one day they did. And there's even knockoffs that are famous and worth more than the originals because they're so Ooh. they're so well known for right. being a knockoff that they're uh, that they're rare and sought <laughs> after. There was even a lawsuit um, toward the company, the Takamini lawsuit era, which is where they used to clone um, a whole bunch of like Martin and Gibson guitars. And, yeah, Takamini's a, a guitar manufacturer. Yeah, and they're still around, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they made a whole bunch of guitars in the seven, late seventies, early eighties that blatantly ripped off the visual stylization and audible stylization of a whole bunch of really popular, expensive guitars. And I had one for a while. I think have you had have you had Takamini lawsuit no, guitar? No, I've never owned one. Our buddy Josh Gleave, we did a co-write with. He, That's right. Yeah, he had a couple, um, but they sound great. And uh, for knockoffs, I mean. Dang, I one of the best sounding recorded acoustics I've ever heard. Right, and a lot cheaper. Oh, well, a lot cheaper. And that's, you know, that was the biggest reason for the lawsuit was these companies were losing business to this, to Takamini, who was making an exact replica of their guitar um, that sounded just as good, and if not in some cases better, right. and for way less money. And so to restate the original question, does the amount of money you pour into an instrument really make a difference in the sound quality? Well, let's look at some very popular musicians who happen to be playing very you know, inexpensive um, versions of instruments. Uh, like before we started this podcast, we were talking about the Wooten brothers, Victor Wooten, a really popular, well-known bass player. Prolific, yeah. And his brother, uh, Reggie Wooten. Reggie plays a Fender Squire, like a Squire guitar. Which Squire, is, you can pick those starter kits up at Walmart for like $100. $100. Bucks. You yeah. can have the same kind of guitar that one of these world-famous guitarists are playing um, on stage and all around the world. So My Chemical Romance. Oh, I like that band. Epiphone Les Paul. So Epiphone's the, the cheaper version, right? The cheaper version. I picked mine up. I think I got mine from a thrifty nickel, if you have those where you live. And yeah. Uh, for $150. And uh, other Epiphone notable users would be like Bob Marley, a uh, huge reggae um, uh, singer, I guess. Rest in peace, man. Uh, Dixie Chicks and Twisted Sister. Uh, John Lee Hooker uh, used a, a couple of Epiphone hollow bodies. Now, John Lee Hooker... Those might have been before Gibson bought Epiphone. Maybe. So I mean, those might have been a while ago. The, re, the actual, like the Epiphone Epiphones. But they're still not as expensive as, I mean, at the time. No, I mean, clearly the company went under and right. Gibson saved them. Yeah, but these are people who could afford more expensive instruments. So obviously they had trust in the way it sounded and felt and played and everything. Yeah. Uh, Chad Kroger, name that band. Look at this graph. <laughs> that's, the, that's my favorite parody of that song. <laughs> Nickelback, uh, as well as his Gibsons, uses some Epiphone um, Elitist LPs and Elitist SG and one regular Epiphone LP, which are different models of LP being Les Paul. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ace Freely from Kiss had an Epiphone signature Les Paul that he used for most of the shows until the last couple of years where he went back to Gibsons. Uh, this one was my favorite. Uh, a little guy by the name of John Lennon uh, look him up. He's a lesser well-known uh, musician. He was in that the band named after the Bugs, the Beatles. The 
the beat uh, like it, the beatitudes. Yeah, but they're like it's the different version of that. The beatles. Mm. Mm. Um, some people call it the Beatles, but it's <laughs> definitely not that. <laughs> Amateurs. We're in the industry. We would know. <laughs> um, <laughs> he he actually played a couple of different Epiphone hollow bodies as well. Leonard Skinner got Ricky Medlock. Oh yeah, using Epiphone Les Pauls. And this is my favorite, and I talked about this a minute ago. Les Paul, interesting name for a fella who plays guitar. Maybe he invented something uh, called the Les Paul. Uh, his original guitars and his current main acts were made with parts mostly from um, like the Epiphone parts. So I can tell that you got these facts from an article that was written a few years ago. Because he is no longer with us. He is no longer with us. Right. Uh, my buddy Jake actually is his name. And I were, were starting to plan a trip up to New York. He was actually still gigging up till the day he died. I know, man. Uh, we wanted to go see him live and, uh, and he passed away before we could make it. But yeah. How dare him? <laughs> well, that he, jerk. Didn't he know that you were coming up there? The Jakes were coming to New York to watch him? Uh, he, uh, yeah, so he was actually playing uh, Epiphone parts, wow. mostly in his own guitars. Wow. Which, I mean, he had access to whatever you needed. Right. <laughs> and he chose those for a reason. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, so we were talking about a minute ago, artists playing and preferring knockoffs. Uh, how about old James Hetfield? Name that band. Metallica. Yeah, you're re- you don't read good. It's not even on here. I Metallica. I just know it from memory. Oh, wow. I'm really good at music facts. You don't remember good. Metallica is. Uh, it's Metallica. Oh yeah, like the t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> like the t-shirt brand. <laughs> Hi, this is Seth Mosley, and I got a huge announcement for all of you songwriters out there. These Song Chasers commercial songwriting courses now available, and you can get it for a special deal at turnedupodcast.com/slash/seth, just like my name, S-E-T-H. This is a comprehensive course in commercial songwriting for anyone who wants to be a part of writing a hit song. Again, go over to turneduppodcast.com slash Seth. Everything you need to know about commercial songwriting, turneduppodcast.com slash Seth. Like, like the Target shirts, right? So he plays a Chinese knockoff of a Gibson. So why? Why do you think that is? Uh, it's like his favorite little like flying V, which is my favorite shape of a guitar. Could be the, the a, it could be the way it sounds, you know. You plug it in, it, and that's it. Like, does it sound good? Does it feel good in your hands? Like, do you, as a guitar player, and I don't know, I honestly don't know the answer to this next question. Do you, does it? Do you break in a guitar? Like, is this something like where you start wearing off the finish on the back? Does it fit your hand differently after like ten years of use? Is it something like I've broken this one in? It fits my hand right now, or is it? just find one that worked for him. How does that work? Electric guitars, I would say no. Um, I mean, sometimes the finish does wear off if, you know, years of sweat every single night. Uh, that makes sense. You know, the salt and stuff, and if you don't clean it off. But, um, some people actually take sandpaper to their necks because they like the way they feel. I just watched a YouTube video of someone who did that. Yeah. They um, called it a, a custom finish. I'm like, it looks like you just sanded off the backside paint. <laughs> right. Um, but, it, it, you know, necks are, the, so the radius of the neck um, how round oh, yeah. it is. If it's C-shaped or more of a, like a D-shaped, capital D-shaped maybe? Yep. And, a little different. And, uh, and then how thick they are uh, all affect the way it feels in your hand. And, and it, there's not one that's better than another. It just depends on what you like. Hmm. And, uh, and so as long as that feels good and if you plug it in and it sounds good, it really doesn't matter who made it, where it came from, how new or old it is. None of the, all of that goes out the window the second that you realize, I love the way this feels and I love the way it sounds. So looking at your like line of guitars over there, I can see the different shapes of the necks and the roundness on the back and how like, I guess, narrow or thick they are. 
Um, what do you prefer? Like, tell me about your acoustic because I can't tell what it is from this side because it's the back of it. But what kind of acoustic? What is Jake Jones? Number one Billboard charting songwriter, guitarist, singer, producer, mixer. What's your go-to acoustic over there? Uh, well, first of all, to back up and answer your question about the neck thicknesses, I prefer a thicker neck. Okay. Um, I have I have pretty big hands. Okay. And so it just feels better in my hands. It feels easier to play. I also play probably, I, I do play lead, but I play a lot more rhythm sure. uh, and riffy kind of stuff. So anyway, um, but that acoustic guitar is a Fender acoustic. Um, and it is a very special acoustic for several reasons. Uh, it was my dad's. And yeah. so I inherited that from him. Uh, but I remember when he bought it back in the nineties, I believe it's a 1994 and he spent big bucks on it. At least my six year old mind, seven year old mind, uh, thought it was big bucks, $150. Whoa. So nothing like top of the line just for you guys. That's, that's how the Joneses roll. <laughs> for, the, for the record, $150 is nothing to spend on, a, on an acoustic guitar. That's, that's cheap. True. Yeah. Uh, and they're McPherson guitars you can pick up right now if you have 10 grand. Right. Oh, yeah. Of course. It, it just if you want to pick one up on your way home. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll grab one after. Stop by Subway, Chipotle, whatever it is, and then stop by the McPherson guitar company and pick up a guitar. Drop 10 Gs. No. Uh, so that's my go to guitar. That guitar is on records circulating planet earth right now all over the place on the charts. Um, that is my favorite planet, by the way, <laughs> out of all the planets I've been to. Oh, I'm pretty sure earth is my favorite. Um, th- I'm surprised there are some other planets that you've been to that I thought you might like more. Um, no. So the guitar, it has a massive gash in the back. It came that way. Um, so my dad got a discount. Uh, so it was 150 new. I don't know what he paid for it. Huh. Um, and it's never been repaired. And, uh, and it just sounds better with age, but that is, that taught me a lot, which is it really, especially with acoustic guitars, more than any other kind of guitar, the sound that you get out of an acoustic guitar is the direct result of the sound bouncing around inside of the body. And so the type of wood that it's made of makes a huge difference. Hmm. It does make a difference with an electric guitar for sure, but the actual resonance, the sound waves themselves are produced from within that wood. And, uh, and so as it ages, as it gets older, uh, the wood starts to get a little darker and the, it starts to kind of break down. That makes sense. Um, and it starts sounding sweeter. It starts sounding better. Those vintage guitars we're talking about, like the Gibson uh, J45 or whatever, those old Martin guitars, uh, from almost a hundred years ago, have these really sweet sounds because like the pores open up in the wood, um, humidity and air conditions and everything like that have to do with the wood expanding, contracting. Um, and that definitely affects the way that the sound is absorbed or reflected inside of the body of the guitar. I do have to say, uh, and you, like Willie Nelson's guitar is a great example. That thing, is, oh, it's yeah. got holes it's in it. It's been beat up for, for decades. Um, in 2011, we actually worked at Blackbird and on the wall, they had this old guitar. And I made a joke when we first walked in about the guitar because it just looks like a piece of crap. Sure. It looks like just it's up, it's hanging on the wall for decoration. Yeah, I, they got I was, that one off Craigslist and were like, hey, let's throw that up there. 30 I, bucks. I was scared to touch it. I mean, <laughs> for fear that it would fall apart. Or catch a disease. And our producer that we worked with uh, made the joke. He said, before we're done, I'm going to make you record something on this album with that guitar. To which I'm just thinking, oh, that's hilarious. That'd be great. Right, let's right, do right. It. Yeah. That sounds like a fun little novelty thing to do. 
Sure enough, the bridge of one of our songs, uh, he decided to throw an acoustic guitar part in it. Just for that? Set me up and he said, there you go, play that guitar. Huh. Uh, it, it's Now, I was not expecting it to sound good, so it's not some sort of confirmation bias. I expected it to sound like garbage and had been told nothing to the contrary. So when I sat down and strummed the first chord, my mind was blown. What happened? It was only the tension of the strings that were even keeping the tuning pegs in place. Like the wood around them had had deteriorated. Whoa. Um, there were thin spots in the in the guitar and places where the wood was separating, and it was you could tell it used to be a darker brown, but was like almost black from just years of dinge and dust. Nineteen thirty-five Gibson. Dude. I don't even know what model. Um, and poorly taken care of. Man, and it sounded absolutely amazing. I think it's. Uh, I think it's the song Sever from the We As Human EP that came out in 2011. If you listen to that, the acoustic in that bridge is that guitar. Those are my favorite stories to hear. Like you weren't expecting something, but something magical happened out of it. Yeah. Um, let's talk about cheap gear. Um, for instance, I started the story, you made me stop. Uh, I was recording a band not too long after I moved to Nashville in a little studio called The Givens House. And it was a hard rock band from Alabama. They came up to work with me and the guitarist shows up with a solid state, really inexpensive crate amp is what it was called. Crate is is like the industry butt of every guitar amp joke. Sure. Yeah, and, and uh, rightly so. They don't have a fairly widely popular sound. <laughs> I'll tell you, they're dependable. Uh, yeah, The reason why it's everybody's first electric guitar amp. They will sound the same for the next 30 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he came in with that and I rolled my eyes, like to myself, obviously. Um, and okay, I don't own a guitar amp to bring in at this point in my life. So I will... Uh, do what I can to make this one work. And so this brings me to a point where it doesn't kind of really matter what you bring in um, if you know how to work with what you have. I think it doesn't matter if you have the thought and the time to put into, let's make this sound good. Sometimes you physically can't, like I can't make hitting a, uh, a broken drum head sound like that really cool snare drum that you sound that you hear on your favorite records. Like you, sometimes you just can't do that because it's not there. But with a guitar amp, you have a little bit of room to work with. You can adjust the tone and the EQ and the, where the microphone is and what kind of microphone you use and what kind of gear you record through. So I plugged it in. I plugged him up. I said, "You just play the part over and over again, and I'm going to get in there and work with it." And uh, that ended up being one of my favorite guitar tones I've ever gotten in the recording studio. $150 crate, solid state combo amp that this guy was playing on this hard rock record where I needed a wall of sound. Uh, and what I thought would be a little fuzzy, hissy mess ended up being one of my favorite guitar tones that I've had other colleagues ask what you used on that. And I had to kind of like swallow a little hard before <laughs> I answered a, a, a crate, solid state combo amp. <laughs> well, what's great is af- so after the fact, right? So if you told someone ahead of time, yeah, we're going to be using a crate, crate solid state, you know, you you get laughs. I, I would totally be laughed at for sure. Uh, but then after the fact, when people are like, man, that sounds amazing. What did you use? One of my favorite things is to be like, you want to know what we used? You want to know what we did with that? We used a cheap, junky yeah. amp that you were just making a joke about. Yeah. 
The one um, you were just making fun of is what I used on that one. Thank you very much. Right. Okay. So I have one. Uh, it, so I joined We as Human. And when I did, I inherited a Mesa triple rectifier amp head. Now, not only are these things incredibly expensive, this one was special because it came from a certain uh, age range in the 90s where they made them a, a very specific way and highly sought after by tone heads. Tone heads. And, um, and so I didn't completely understand the entire setup. Apparently, I misunderstood the agreement. And in 2011, uh, the amp was actually repossessed. From from my from my possession, uh, it was taken away. <laughs> the good place for it to be repossessed from by the owner, who I didn't even realize was the owner. I thought someone else owned it, and it was on loan. Anyway, uh, so here I am. We had actually just done uh, Winter Jam, a big uh, a big uh, festival um, in in the Christian music industry. Yeah, a big festival tour. Uh, in fact, uh, that year it was the biggest tour in the world. It beat out we beat out Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift. Oh, it was huge. Um, so big tour, use this amp and I was not only heartbroken, I was pretty angry, uh, that the person had taken it from me because the only other amp I owned was a $150 PV amplifier that I <laughs> bought to mess around at home and practice with. What'd you do? So I didn't have a choice. I was broke. I was in a band. Right. So <laughs> what that means. I loaded that amp up uh, into the head case that I had and took it out for the next tour. Uh, so fun fact, Skillet was on tour. Uh, on They were on the Winter Jam Tour and they were on the next tour as well. And, uh, and their sound engineer, we were paying him to do our sound as well. So we get done with the very first show of this next tour where I'm using this cheap amp. And I'm, I'm literally so ashamed to have this cheap amp on stage that I've gone through and removed every piece of branding off of it and taken <laughs> black gaff tape and taped over the name so that no one could tell what it was because I was so ashamed. Please tell me you used like a, a silver Sharpie and wrote some other brand name on there just for fun. Uh, so I didn't, Oops. but our bassist did. <laughs> Someone actually did. He wrote Dumble, which is, they're like $90,000, $100,000 amps. <laughs> and if you turn around, right the second, Robert, behind you, it's the amp down there on the bottom. The it's one that still says there. Dumble, it's still there. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so yeah, we get done with that first show and the sound engineer, uh, his name uh, is Rob Taylor. Um, he's not, he doesn't work with them anymore. He owns Taylor Trucking, which you might've heard of. But uh, he walked up to me and shook my hand and said, whatever you have done to fix your tone, Thank you. Wow. Like, what do you mean? Man, your tone was rough. And I don't know what you did, but mixing your tone today was like a hot knife through butter. <laughs> it sounded so good. <laughs> Isn't that a cool like, compliment to have? Got to be kidding me. <laughs> In fact, uh, Justin Forshaw, because it's so expensive and so um, uh, inconvenient to try to fly a guitar amp, um, every show that he's done with uh, As We Ascend, unless we were using amps provided to us by the venue, uh, he's used that amp uh, on stage. Less of a risk of losing something or breaking something expensive. It just, it's a great amp. It sounds good. Um, and I found out later that the band Blackstone Cherry, who, if you haven't heard of them, look them up. They're amazing, but uh, they're, they're probably most known for a song that, that they put out, but they're not, they're not known for it. Florida Georgia Line is their song, uh, Stay. If I told you I loved you, would it make you want it? So that's their song and Florida Georgia Line covered it. Anyway, um, they're out using the exact same make and model of of that amp. 
Dang. Um, and those guys are killer guitarists and, and a phenomenal tone. Man. So it doesn't really matter in most cases, in some cases, in cases, exactly how much money you pour into your gear. As long as it sounds good, it is good. And uh, I think that's a rule to live by. So true. And, and in, in 2019, a lot of people are more, more apt to play a boutique knockoff of a popular amp. Right. than the popular amp itself. Um, you see that everywhere. In fact, uh, my amplifier now that I use on stage and in the studio whenever I do use an amp, which we can talk about in a second, but um, is a Splawn, which really is... I love Splawn stuff. It's a, it's a knockoff of a Marshall. Yeah. Um, a Marshall JCM800. Uh, and then mine has a little knob on it that I can make it sound like a Marshall Plexi, um, which is just, uh, you know, it's, I love it. I think it sounds great. And it's not because I couldn't afford a Marshall. In fact, it was probably a little more expensive than a Marshall, um, but it's just because it sounded good and that's all that matters. Right. Uh, I see here in the notes, you have another story to tell. Should I let you tell it? Yeah, yeah. I'll keep this one quick um, because I'm sure both of us have a million stories like this one. But what made this one special is it's really the reason I'm sitting here today. Uh, I, we had just moved to Nashville. I was, um, I was touring with We As Human. We had a little bit of a break and I had done recording. I mean, I had, I had a recording studio in New Mexico, but I had closed, I was closed indefinitely because I was touring. Right. And I just knew I was going to make so much money on tour that, you know, I wasn't going to need to produce anyone for a long time. It's insert joke. That's the joke. Insert canned <laughs> laughter. <laughs> You're really bad at that. Um, anyway, I, I'm not a can. Oh, well, you kind of look like one from here. Thank you. I'm not wearing my contacts. It's my hat. Oh, um, no, but, uh, I sat down, I didn't even have a, I didn't have a studio. I didn't even have a room for a studio. Had, had my daughter by then, my oldest Emma, she had just been born. So mm-hmm. all my recording equipment was in the living room next to the TV. And so my buddy came to town, stayed for a few days, and we recorded three songs in my living room, acoustic and vocal. And then I went in on the computer and added all the other instruments. Uh, But we're going through, and at this point, I had some expensive microphones. Uh, I had some good gear, some nice stuff, and it, it was time for him to sing. And I stuck one of these mics in front of his face, and he started singing, and it just, it didn't sound right. Sure. It did, it just, I couldn't get it to sound good. So I was like, well... You know, I could, I could fight it later, but let's, let's just try another mic. So we grab another one, same thing, and another one, and another one. And, uh, and then finally I'm like, okay, uh, the last one, the only one we haven't tried out of the, and it wasn't that many, but it was a few. Um, the last one that we, we hadn't tried was the first microphone I ever bought, a uh, $60 uh, condenser microphone. Condenser is just the type of microphone it is. Sure. Um, 60 bucks off of Sweetwater, I think, back in like the early 2000s. And I thought, well, just for fun, let's just see what this sounds like. So I plug it in, stick it in front of his face, and it sounds amazing. So we record his entire three, all three of his demos with this microphone. I get done and wind up letting a buddy of mine hear it who happens to be managing another artist. And he just says, wow, this sounds incredible. These recordings are amazing. I want you to work with an artist that I'm managing. And that just snowballed and turned into all of a sudden I was more busy working with artists uh, mm-hmm. than I had time to know, you know, I, I didn't to do anything else. Right. And I, yeah. uh, I quit my job, my day job rolling burritos. And, uh, <laughs> and so when I wasn't on tour, I was working with bands and it was all from these recordings that I used this super cheap equipment in, in my Dude, living room with. If you can make it sound good, it's fine. And, and we talked about this so many times already in this podcast, but in real life, in our careers, if it sounds good, it is good. 
Um, and it, it's funny, this, a couple weeks ago, a uh, an engineer hit me up and asked me to come help him get drum sounds and everything like that. And they gave me a gear list of what this huge studio had and said, what would you use on toms, on the on the drums? And I said, I use, and this is true, my favorite uh, like drum tom mic is the Audix D6. And I bring them with me to every session I go to because most studios don't have them. Um, they are inexpensive uh, in comparison to the right. industry standard. They're 199 bucks each brand new. You can get them on eBay for like a hundred bucks or whatever. Um, and they come usually in a drum pack of mics. Like you can get the whole pack for like 500, bu- 500 bucks. You get a whole pack of mics and you get several of those and whatever. And so a lot of recording guys uh, like kind of look down their nose at them. And so when I said, Hey, check out the D sixes, I swear to you on these things. Um, these, these are what you need on Tom's. They, they just sound great. And I am, uh, just to toot my own horn, often re- like hired because of my drum sounds and what I can do while recording drums. And I have a gold record um, with Kelly Clarkson for recording drums. I have uh, worked on huge records um, for my drum sounds. And so I, I, I like to think that I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, at least my mom says I do. Oh, no, I could speak from, from experience that your drum sounds are phenomenal. Thanks, man. Um, here's the five bucks I told you about earlier. Saying that, thank you. Um, uh, in my pocket, real yeah. Quick. Okay, thanks. And then, uh, so I told him this. I'm like, hey, grab a pair of D6s or three, two or three of those, depending on how many times you have, um, and thank me later. And he goes, well, I just hit up the studio manager, and he here's a screenshot of what he said. And he, like, apparently, he was not happy that he even requested those. He goes, those are live sound mics. Those are horrible pieces of junk. Uh, whoever you're getting the information from doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, which just led me. <laughs> I'm like, dang it, he's right. Uh, but then I told him, uh, or he told me, he goes, then right after he sent that message, he called me and just chewed me out. And I'm like, you, what? This guy's off his rocker. Like, first what? of all, what kind of engineer, studio manager, whatever would like just scold you for your suggestion on a microphone? And then apparently, you, I mean, you told him you're getting the information from somebody else, which maybe he didn't like that too much. I don't know. Uh, but then he called and shooed you out over it. That's ridiculous. Say, Use 421s. So what? Yeah, that's the Nashville way to do it. <laughs> I hate those. Uh, but so I, I did the Nashville thing and Googled him and his credits, which he has none. So just in my own head, I like high fived myself. I'm like, whatever, get what he's talking about. Um, which <laughs> a snooty response from my my part, but whatever. And uh, so I, I swear on those. First of all, I have the expensive mics. I have the 421s. I have the industry standards for, for Toms. And I, I choose intentionally to use the lesser expensive ones because of the way they sound. Same with room mics. I have the Royer r- ribbon mics and we had some co- pair of holes, uh, thousands of dollars a piece. And I'm using the $150 uh, Cascade ribbon mics. because the fat I, heads. The fat heads, which I love. Um, and I think they sound better. That's just my personal preference, and I apparently people keep paying me to do what I do. So <laughs> it's, someone it's, likes it. You you found out that it's a lot of people's preference, whether they know it or not. <laughs> um, but but sometimes it, does it matter what you're using gear wise if you don't have a big enough studio or the cool enough studio to record at anyway? Does it really matter? Like okay, cool, you're using 150 dollars room mics or 100 dollar tom mics, but you still have to go rent the huge ceilinged, wood-floored, professionally-treated recording studio, right? Or it won't sound good. Is that true? Right. It's impossible to get a good sound of anything unless 
you've, you're paying at least $1,500 a day to be somewhere. And that's if you bring your own engineer. So right, because well, because if you take those, if you take that and break it down to dollar bills and then staple them to the walls, it really helps with the sound diffusion. It does. It that's does all I can lot. figure out anyway. I, that's the only thing I can think of. That yeah, they have the walls full. Of, of course gold. not. I think we've established at this point in the podcast that definitely is not the case. Now, now I will say that's not to say that, especially with drums, where you want to rely on a lot of the room, um, that having a nice room, big open room, uh, isn't going to aid a lot. Um, <laughs> it's true. But also, that the, being said, no, those big studios sound great, mind you. You have more of this proof of of uh, how it does not take a big nice studio to get big nice sounds. Yeah, that that Kelly Clarkson record that I did, um, the drums on were, was recorded in a room smaller than a bedroom. An average size bedroom um, here in the United States is about 10 by 10, 10 feet by 10 feet. I don't know what that is in metrics. So um, something meters by something meters. Uh, three and a quarter meter? I don't know, something like that. Yeah, about three, um, about three, 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 three meters by three. by three meters. Let's just call it that. So uh, this, this room was smaller than that and was previously an accountant's office uh, literally still had a file cabinet hanging from the one of the walls. Um, <laughs> I treated it a little bit. You know, I put up some some sound diffusion and absorption in the room to keep it from being too reverby or echoey um, and, and to manage with it. But I knew what I'm doing with the microphones I have. I know what I'm doing uh, with the size room I have and the reflections. And I recorded the drums in a very small room, not a huge, it had a carpet too, like little thin, you know, accountant room carpet. The Berber what it's yeah. called. Yeah, yes. From my vacuum cleaner days. I used to sell <laughs> vacuum cleaners door to door. It's a true story. It's actually how I bought that Epiphone Les Paul rabbit oh, trail over. Man. Those are good vacuums. I have one. Yeah, me too. Yeah, those are good things. Uh, so I, I do know from firsthand experience that it does not take a huge room to record um, to get your good sounds. Um, I love the huge room sound and you can play with more mics and put them in different places. Uh, but if you only have a small room, use what you got. Use your knowledge, make do with it, put some couch cushions against the wall and, and be done with it. Uh, it's doable. And I want to encourage you to make art with what you have, not with what you wish you had. Well, and you know, I, this is a little off topic, but if you really need that drum room sound and you don't have a good room, kill the room with blankets and mattresses or couch pillows or whatever you have. It really doesn't matter. Uh, and then just use a, use a computer plugin to kind of help with that room sound yeah, you if can, that's what you need. Or if you have really bizarre rooms or really weird sounds that some might call bad, use use it to your advantage. Experiment with it. And maybe maybe create a new sound around it. And if you're not a musician at all and this has nothing to do with you, just know that maybe some of the stuff you've heard on the radio wasn't recorded in those those studios you've seen in the movies and the TV shows. And most likely, probably wasn't. My mind was blown uh, the the way they're doing drums a lot these days, and I didn't know this until I heard, uh, it might have been Shinedown talking about it. Um, what they're doing a lot now is, uh, you know, they'll mic up the whole drum kit, but they're only they're only using what's coming through the two overhead microphones. Everything else is getting triggered and sampled replaced drum samples that were that were recorded in big studios right uh somewhere else um and yeah and then replaced in fact uh i'm not gonna say their names but i guarantee 99.9 percent of everyone listening to this 
uh, a, a big, big, big band whose last record came out a couple of years ago. Um, their drummer went into the studio and simply hit the drums a bunch of times uh, <laughs> to record the samples and then went home. And the entire Dude. record was made just using those drum samples instead of having the drummer uh, play the parts. That happens very frequently. Um, you know, and it's, it's uh, I, I say if the band doesn't care, if they're not looking for the experience and you're a good enough producer and engineer to know how to really make that sound good, you know, the, the purists are going to say, well, it's not, it's not, you can't get a good sound because you're missing the human element. Um, I guess it all comes down to, did anyone like it? Did anyone buy it? Did it sound good? Yeah. What's your level of success measured by? Um, if, if you're happy with it, you're successful and you did it. If you sold a thousand records and that was your goal, who cares? I guess the other question too is if they had played it all together or mm. instead did it the way they did it, would anyone even have known the difference at all? Even I, maybe subconsciously been like, I don't know, something about this is better than that. I don't know. I think not because I know that drums, uh, are, 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 affinity for music especially rock music these days is we want things to be very tight very precise um and, and as the human element being thrown in there just the way that humans are there's imperfection so i don't think it can be as tight playing live all at once especially metal or stuff that's really really fast that's an intricate yeah um well i agree with you on that uh you know i i just told that story about using my living room Um, and that wasn't the first time. In fact, uh, so I, that was my friend that I recorded. Uh, and then the artist I wound up working with right after that, based on those recordings by my friend, I was still in my living room. Uh, that's where we tracked the vocals, uh, right in front of the TV and the couch. And that artist brought in a friend of hers, just who is a town visiting and sat on my couch while we recorded and kind of hung out. And she enjoyed the vibe and, and uh, the way I, I worked with this artist so much that she hired me to do a full project. Um, and it was all in my living room. And I was embarrassed. I'm like, sorry, guys, my living room. I, I, I tried to get all the dishes done. Struggle's real. It was a tiny little downstairs apartment. It wasn't like a nice big living room in a house. It was a tiny downstairs apartment living room like i've had the same feeling in all of my recording studios that i've ever owned or co-owned or whatever over the last 15 years um it's not one like the ones you see in the movie and they're not that many like those there are not that many huge uh first class facilities that you see in the film um industry and so most of them are in houses or wings of houses or little outhouses behind the houses uh, or accountants' buildings, or taxidermists, or whatever it may be, and so I've always had out of the five studios I've owned so far, um, six maybe, that every time someone comes in, a client, and that I, I feel like they're just looking around, like their eyes are just scanning the room, and they're just nitpicking it because, like, oh, this isn't what I thought it would be. This is what I saw in that one movie that one time, right? Or in your Instagram photos, on the when show I've, Nash, I've seen you working with this band in this huge console. Like, where's all that? I thought that's what I was getting. Because they don't know that the gear that we have, Jake, you and I, um, in our studios, we know how to use it. We know the ins and outs of it. We know what it can do, what it can't do. We know how to get what we want out of it. And so when we know that these artists are coming in, we have it prepped and set up, and we already have a game plan in in mind, sometimes on paper, of what we're going to route everything through and how it's all going to work and how it's all going to play out and what it's going to sound like at the end before we even hit the first note. 
And so when these bands come in and these artists come in and I'm feeling judged, I'm like, I'm just wondering, I'm a thinker, I'm an overthinker. I'm like, oh man, they're just, they're just taking all the sand and going, oh man, why isn't this bigger? Why don't they have this <laughs> huge console? Where's all the things? Where are the buttons and knobs? And why doesn't it look like an airplane? Um, I'm like, I'm, I'm thinking all this and, and they might be thinking all this too, um, but, but maybe they're not. And then I think once they fall in like, okay, wait, this guy's got the credits or this guy knows what he's doing. This is why our label hired him. This is why we're here. We're, uh, let's just see what happens. And, but, and usually 99.9% of the time, they're like, oh man, it doesn't matter what you have or where you have it. Um, and a lot of times I have the same gear that the big studios do, maybe even better taken care of because I have pride in my stuff rather <laughs> than an intern who doesn't care to clean the gear or upkeep it. Um, and at the end of the day, they get a record that sounds great. I say at the end of the day, figuratively, at the end of the day, you don't get a record that sounds great. It takes days and weeks. Anyway, uh, but one time, Jake, a band came into my studio and they had a band meeting and came back after dinner and said, I think we're going to leave. I'm like, what happened? And it wasn't me that brought the band in. It was a, a guy who wanted to co-produce it with me. It was his project. And he kind of sold me as being like the name on the project. And it's like, come in, we're going to do this with Robert Venable, blah, blah, blah. They show up, they look around, they did, did a little scanning of the room. I'm like, this is not going to end up well. And uh, they had the band meeting, came back and said, we're going to leave. Uh, because it doesn't look like the pictures. I'm like, what pictures? I didn't see anybody pictures of my studio and all my Instagram stuff. You scroll through there, it looks just like the pictures of my studio. Right. Like, what's your problem? Um, they're like, well, we went to the website, which was 10 years old for my previous studio, and they didn't see the same wall or the same console or the same gear. I had more gear at the time, which is funny. Um, I just didn't have the same console because I never used it. I, it just held my keyboard up. <laughs> um, and so they, they, they left and said, this isn't for us. We wanted to work at the studio. I'm like, oh, you just wanted to work in a different environment. You wanted to work in a place that looked different. We wanted a nice big console for Instagram pictures. Right. Like, how are we going to post videos of this? You just have a regular desk with tons of gear on it rather than buttons and knobs and faders. That's weird. Well, I think a lot, uh, two, two as well. That was two. Two. Um, T-double-O. T-double-O. Uh, a lot of artists have no idea what that does. They don't understand at all. And why would they? Right. It's not their job to know. Um, and uh, But the truth is, yeah, it's what used to take up tons of space, um, you know, 10, 15, 20 feet of faders and knobs and, and all that um, now is just on a computer. It's all the same. Right. It's just digitized. And the thing is, even the big, 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 big money makers that have been doing it for 20, 30 years for all the biggest artists in the entire world that are, that are recording and mixing all these massive, massive records. Um, they're all making the switch over to computer software versions of what they have. And the reason is it's cheaper and it's not just cheaper to buy. It's cheaper to maintain and, because you don't have to maintain it. And you don't have to pay the electric bill, literally 800 to a thousand dollars a month to keep an SSL console on with the old power break. I got to get into details about that. You're paying an extra house payment um, just to Goodness. keep the power on on a console. Wow. It's ridiculous. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. It's, uh, it, it doesn't make economical sense uh, to, to keep that stuff around. Now there are quirks of, just like with a certain instrument, you know, I've got this Fender. I could play the same acoustic guitar made the same year and it could sound like garbage, 
Um, you know, those, those old consoles had little things that were a little different about every one of them. Right. Um, so maybe there was a couple of channels on it that just had that extra piece of magic that just sounded different from all the other channels. Maybe. Maybe. But, I mean, don't get me wrong. They're fun to play with. I love playing on the consoles. And sometimes you need it. Uh, if you need, you know, 48-something channels of, of preamps because you're recording six people live in the studio. I've had to do that. I've maxed it out. I needed all that gear. I've recorded in studios that have done that. Um, which I couldn't do in my own. How many channels did you use for the 21 Pilots Mute Math sessions? 48. Goodness gracious. 48 channels maxed out and I ran out. I ran out of channels. I needed more. So I summed some things um, to single channels or, or stereo pair um, because I needed to send stuff for video for that project as well. I cannot imagine trying to juggle that many channels all at once. So I had all 48 on the API console plus some outboard gear going on with compression um, and some effects channels. And then still didn't have enough for what I wanted to do. But I had two drummers, so two whole drum sets, um, two keys players, a guitarist, um, and uh, the singer, obviously. But a couple, three people were singing. So wow. all sorts of stuff. There's stuff going on. Six players total. So, so we've, we've dropped some names during this episode, uh, talking about Fender, Marshall, Gibson, Martin. I'm just, I'm, I could keep Takamini. going. Takamini. Takamini. <laughs> um, and the thing is what makes an American Stratocaster better than a Korean Stratocaster? Uh, and other than maybe, maybe some slightly better parts. And I would argue that, um, you're, you're paying for the, the name you're paying for the headstock to say made in America, made in the uh-huh. USA. Yeah, same with recording gear too. Um, you're paying for the name of uh, so Universal Audio or Yuri makes the 1176 gear, which is a compressor. It's called the 1176. But then there's also like Warm Audio, which makes the same thing for 400 bucks or 500 bucks instead of you know 1500 or 2000. And I love that it's a trend now to prefer the less expensive gear. I mean, I love it. Right? I go for it. It I, sounds I amazing. It. Yeah, if it um, sounds good, I'm good with it. And, uh, you know, I don't know, I haven't spent enough time around both of them together to say that I would know a difference. Um, but even if it is some sort of confirmation bias, it's a great one to have, right? Like, no, all the, all the expensive ones are better, you know, like that's terrible, but it's something that we do a lot as human beings because we worked harder to be able to, for a longer period of time, to be able to save up the money to buy that piece of gear. (laughs) So you better believe we're going to like it a lot better. And a lot of that that more expensive gear might be vintage or something. It might be dirtier sounding. It might be actually worse sounding than the newer stuff, but that might be what people prefer. Um, so it might be, in some cases, worth the extra thousands of dollars for some kind of piece of gear um, to make it sound crappier. Sorry, Mom. For the, uh, than, the, than the newer, cleaner gear. <laughs> um, Chris Ordalji talks about spending thousands of dollars, famed mix engineer. Yeah. Um, name any massively successful artists over the last 20 years, 25 years. Pick a song, years. throw a dart at it. Um, and, uh, you know, he talks about spending thousands of dollars just to maintain his 1176 compressors and how relieved he was that the company Waves came to him and said, hey, can we, can we take this thing apart and see how it works so that we can make a software version of it? Mm-hmm. So they picked his favorite one, the one that he used the most because it had the most character and quality that he liked. And uh, now you can have... 20 of that one compressor on your session on everything. Yeah. Uh, and for a heck of a lot cheaper. Dude, 
I use that stuff too. It's good. But yeah, brand names, man. It's uh, that's a lot of what you're paying for. And it's, it's you're- the same with anything, like the clothing lines and the purses and the shoes. Yes, there's quality product that they're putting out. Um, if it, if it's worth to you, knowing that you have that name on the gear or on the clothes or on the whatever you're buying, uh, then then good. Maybe it's better for you. Uh, and if you don't care, I'm not a brand name person. Um, I actually prefer prefer not to wear any brand names on my clothing. Um, with gear stuff, it looks good on paper to your clients. They go, do you have a Neumann microphone? Um, I do. Like, okay, we're going to work with you then. Because they that's what they think. That if they Google the best microphones, and if your producer of choice doesn't have that, then they might not be a good producer. <laughs> um, so like, there's some stuff I have literally just for that reason. Uh, because people are are stupid, <laughs> um, or or I guess you say ignorant to the fact that it doesn't matter sometimes. And, right. And even having the Neumann U eighty seven microphone that people love to use, um, I had a hundred and fifty dollar clone of that, which I still prefer to use to that Neumann. Well, and there's you know there's there's a whole philosophical psychological side to that as well, and you know is it worth paying? $8,000 for a microphone, even if you never use it, because you'll generate more than $8,000 worth of work just by simply owning it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, right behind you there, we had had a ton of demo tracking sessions this week. Yeah. Uh, and the microphone that I left up all week is my Aventone C12. Aventone is known for making uh, clone replicas uh, equipment. And uh, and so it's based af- on the, um, the AKG... Um, C12. Yeah. Yeah, the Aventone CV12 is what this one is, CV12. Uh, and then so AKG makes a C12, very expensive, very sought-after microphone, great microphone, um, but loads and loads of money. And this Aventone mic uh, has a nickname, which is the Taylor Swift mic, because I don't know about her last couple records, I have no idea, but I know that for uh, her records up, up to that point for sure, and maybe these last two, I don't know, um, it was her mic of choice. It sounded best with her voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's an incredible sounding microphone. I paid $150 plus an old pedal board that I traded for it. Dang, man. And, uh, and that mic steal. sounds amazing. It sounds good on almost everything. It sounds great. Um, and that and the mic I'm, I'm talking into right now are my two most used microphones for vocals. I love these mics that we have right now. The, uh, this is the Shure SM7B. This is our podcast mic of choice, but also my rock vocal song uh, microphone of choice and my hi hat mic of choice. It can take a, it can take a licking, licking, and keep on ticking. Yeah, and sometimes it does tick, it makes a weird noise. Just kidding. I think that's our system. Um, I'm done. I'm done talking about this. Do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, I, I, I mean, I think we kind of. I think we kind of put this one to death, right? We did kick a dead horse with this one. <laughs> it does not. It doesn't take, uh, you know, big bricks of gold to have the most amazing sounding recordings, uh, especially not in 2019. Uh, every single year, year after year, they're coming out with better and better and better software. Before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, um, how when solid state technology came out, it was all the rage and then it quickly turned into... Uh, the worst thing you could ever do. If you instantly wanted to lose a record deal, walk in with a Crate 212. That happened to me. True story. <laughs> uh, record company told me maybe I should pray about the rest of my life and whether or not I should be a musician. Um, did, you, did you ever do that? Yeah, it really happened. Did you ever pray about it? Uh, yeah. yeah did. What did you decide to do? Uh, well, I think, you know, I, I listened to God and he told me 
that maybe I should get into um, like a, a wicker bowl making. Does does he have a voice like Morgan Freeman? He does. That's Wait, cool. never mind. That was Morgan Freeman that told me that. Sorry, oh, got you. I get yeah. confused. They, they're like twins. Really. Super similar. Yeah. Super similar. Hard to tell apart. Um, it's on the lighting. <laughs> oh no, but but uh, it's uh, it it doesn't. It it just it it you just don't need all that. Um, I'm. That's where I landed on on with this is that you don't need all the name brand things. You don't need all the big things. You don't need the expensive things. You don't need the huge roof studios to make a killer record. And we just named a whole bunch of records that were done in small spaces, um, spaces that are very close to you. If you have a basement, maybe you're in a basement um, or garage. And if you're trapped in a basement or garage, please let us know. Um, and we can send help. <laughs> but uh, Morgan Freeman, please help these guys. And then we... <laughs> you're confused now. Yeah, I'm getting them all confused. Um, you don't need that stuff. Obviously, the stuff is great. The stuff is there. It's priced for what it is for a reason. Um, it, it's worth it. However, you don't need it. I mean, I'll say I didn't want anyone to know that I didn't have nice outboard gear and that I didn't have a console and that I didn't have really expensive amplifiers. I mean, now, most of all the guitar work you hear, for real, almost all of it uh, is off of a, a computer software program that was, uh, that was given to me through uh, the company um, IK Multimedia, Amplitude. Good stuff. Uh, I can't tell you how many records have been made through that. Um, <laughs> and I'm using all mine through a Kemper, which is a, an emulator. It's basically just replicating the sound of all these big expensive amps um, just in one single unit using the software on board there. And and, uh, and bands are touring with that live on stage too. So and no one can tell the difference. Nope. Record companies can't tell. Uh, The fans can't tell. And at the end of the day, if no one, if everyone listens to it and says, "Man, that's good tone," how did you get that tone? Then what does it matter what you used? It doesn't. It doesn't matter if it's 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 a flute uh, (laughs) with a grasshopper wedged in the end through a toaster through a toaster. Right. Uh, Which is one of our secret weapons. If it sounds amazing, it is amazing. Period. Uh, and so, but, but what I was saying though, was just, I kept my mouth shut about, um, you know, my, my lack of expensive gear for a long time until I started having success. And that was when I felt like I can be a, you know, a, a campaigner, um, (laughs) of, Hey, you don't have to, you don't have to have expensive gear to be successful. Look at me. I don't have a lot of expensive gear and I've been successful the flip side of that, and, and it's another podcast for another day, but there is, as a creator, there's a bit of psychology involved in owning a, an expensive piece of gear because the truth is it can inspire you to create at a moment where you may not have created, in which case you might come up with something amazing and that might inspire other people that might change the world. I mean, you never know. And so owning that expensive piece of gear is more for your benefit and no one else's. Um, but it will by default benefit other people uh, and has nothing to do with whether it sounds better or not and more to do with just does it does it get you into a mindset of of doing more. Almost like the placebo effect. Completely like the placebo effect, which is next week. No, it's not. I'm just kidding. <laughs> which is what we have time for next week. Uh, uh, like, so we talked about right before the podcast, uh, what if you were handed a guitar? and said this is a $200,000 guitar played by Jimi Hendrix. We restrung it for a right-handed player. And uh, you can play this on this record um, in contrast to here is a, uh, you gotta just here, hold this $80 guitar real quick, play it with whatever you want to. 
would you play them any differently? I think you would. I think subconsciously, maybe even consciously, you would play something different. You would hold it differently, maybe not as tight or maybe tighter. Uh, The pick might be just tighter because of nerves or something. I don't know. But I think you might get a different outcome based off of just what's in the back of your brain hole going, oh man, I'm playing a $200,000 guitar instead of my normal you know, $400 one or instead of that $50, $80, $90 one that someone just handed me a second ago. When the truth is... You know, it, it, it might not sound any different at all. Jimi Hendrix's guitar. Oh, that's true. <laughs> was a cheap piece of junk. But in your brain, if you think maybe this is more expensive, maybe you think this sounds better. Oh, one I forgot to mention. Go. Uh, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, my favorite guitarist in the whole wide world. Oh yeah, we didn't even touch on that. Uh, his guitars, his number one, the one that he's most famous for. His go-to. Pawn Shop. Uh, the saw, he had a guitar named Lenny after his wife. Uh, which is he wrote a song named Lenny after the same wife on that guitar named Lenny. Oh. Uh, Fender did a reissue of it a few years ago. This amazing, this artist series where they like literally use the same brand of cigarette he smoked to burn the same cigarette marks in the back of the headstock. Anyway, again, another pawn shop buy. Um, and, uh, and the guy changed the way we think of blues guitar forever. I mean, he was prolific. Uh, tons of stories just like that. It does. It just doesn't take. It doesn't take um, the most expensive, nicest American-made. Blah 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 blah. Uh, Zach Meyer, Shine Down. His mm. signature guitar is an SE. That's right. And he plays it every show. Right. That's true. Um, and you can pick that up for just a handful of hundred dollars yeah. rather than a handful of thousands. Uh, we need to give a shout out to some of our our patrons. Yeah. Oh, I want to start. Okay, go for it. Uh, a huge thank you to MD Biaco. Dang it. It's Biaco. Biaco. Why can't you get his name right? Drew. Dr. Biaco. I'm sorry, brother. I was with I was just with him last weekend uh, finishing up a vocal session for an EP they have coming out very soon. Um, Ooh, yeah, we have um, some other cool people like Samantha Seeger. What and, up, Sam? Uh, our buddy Rob and uh, XOB Cry. Uh, I'm just kind of like, kind of shooting here from the hip. Uh, Davin C. Casey. Let's go with, ooh, Michael J83. Jennifer Walter, who uh, who had the notes to this episode before it ever even came out. So she she's was not surprised by e- any of this. Executive producers. Yep. Um, and she's hung out with us a couple times in the studio. So, Robert, I am currently not an executive producer. And you never will be, Jake. I could be. Oh. How do I do that? If you went to turnedupodcast.com and then you scrolled over with your mouse to the top right-hand corner and clicked the little button on the left side of the mouse on the little link that says uh, become a patron. And then you can follow the instructions, choose how much you would like to help us out with on our show, and uh, or instead of choosing how much you want to help us out with, choose what you want from us. Like, do you want to be on the show? Do you want a mug? Do you want a sticker? What do you want? And then um, money will just come out of your account magically to help us make the podcast. And then you'll get that in the mail. And uh, now, just to clear it up for... Uh, for our listener here, uh, for the one, um, if, you, if you're still there, is it a is it a real mouse? Um, it is not a real mouse. Not like the animal mouse. Not today. This is a artificial and artificial mouse, and okay. it is made of plastic. Okay. So and plastic mouse, not a real mouse. It's a computer term. Okay. I would tell you to Google it, but I don't think you can. Now, what if I got a mouse? Put a mouse on my touchpad and move it around. Uh, that would be fun to watch. Would it work? the same let's find out next week <laughs> on things jake doesn't know how to do <laughs> when we're with 
uh, Jen and Mel of uh, your BFF pod your bod- podcast. It's uh, <laughs> your BFF pod, which is their, that's funny. That's their uh, <laughs> social media handle. I, I only speak in social media <laughs> handles. And I'm like, Music City Mel. Uh, Melissa, if you're listening to this, that is exactly how you're saved in my phone. I, that's why I have her, I have it saved as Music City Mel. One word. And I'm, says, right? I'm sure uh, she'll bring up what my, what I'm saved as in her phone because <laughs> it's hilarious. That. We're doing a joint episode for this next week. Um, so if you have any questions, if you're hearing this uh, on the day this podcast airs or within a couple of days. April 1st, and this is not a joke. Yes, this is not a fool's joke. A couple of fools telling a joke, maybe. Just uh, shoot us any kind of questions you want to know about love, life. Uh, I'm trying to think of other L words. Laughter. Lullabies, ladybugs, lollipops, uh, limericks. Oh, it's your turn. You have to throw something out. We go back and forth. Corn dogs. Works. Right. Oh. And you're kicked out of the podcast. But uh, we're doing kind of like a love Jack, line thing. Like if you've ever listened to the show Love Line with Dr. Drew and Adam Carolla, they used to call in, ask questions about love and life and stuff. We're not going to get too graphic or anything because we have a clean rating. We like to keep it that way. But we're doing a joint podcast with them and they want to know our opinion on subjects, but they need your questions. So shoot them over to us. At uh, facebook.com slash turned up podcast or Twitter or Instagram, one of my favorites at turned up podcast. Or you can email us um, if you can find that on any of our social medias. Just see the little button says email us. I think, or what are we going with our email address? It's turned up podcast at gmail.com, right? I believe that's the one. I think that's it. Email it. And if it's not us, then say hi to whoever answers. It's like <laughs> prank calling somebody, but email. I think you can email us through our website, which is turned up podcast.com. Yeah. Hit us um, up. And uh, I, thank you. you. Thank you for listening and for giving us your undivided attention. Or slightly divided attention. Because if you're driving, you have to pay attention to the road. Or vacuuming or cooking dinner. doing dishes. Uh, you know, put, I putting like the kids to bed. Taking a shower. Uh, dishes and shower are the two times I listen to podcasts. The most. I do dishes while I'm in the shower. Because I think that accomplishes a lot of things. Like saving the earth by using less water. I just had somebody tell me about drinking beer in the shower. That's disgusting. They called it a shower beer and they were talking about it like it was the most amazing thing that's ever happened to them in their entire life. I feel like that would be horrible. I, that would be, that's what I imagine. I don't like being hot. And so if I were hot and then trying to drink alcohol or something, I don't think that'd end up well. Yeah. That's not my thing. Shower beers. And I'm good. I just do shower shampoo. Hashtag shower beer. I don't drink the shampoo. I just use it. Uh, I don't know. You've been acting a little strange. I think maybe you do. You have been drinking the shampoo. Robert, you've been sniffing the suave lately? (laughs) (laughs) You suave sniffer. And on that note, huge shout out to Real Sound for giving us this platform. Love you, Robert. Oh, uh, man, love you, Jake. Who edited this podcast. And I love Jake. I love Lamp. For sitting here. And are you, Robert, are you just naming random things and saying you love them? (laughs) Until next week. This is Nashville signing out. Peace. Peace.